0: Hello, this is Monocle Reads, I'm Georgina Godwin. Today I'm speaking to renowned activist and educator Kim Samuel. She's the founder and chief belonging officer at the Samuel Centre for Social Connectedness, a think and do tank that works towards combating social isolation and realising the right to belong on a global basis. She's also a visiting scholar at the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative at the University of Oxford, as well as the first ever Fulbright Canada Ambassador for diversity and social connectedness. Her new book is On Belonging, Finding Connection in an Age of Isolation. Kim Samuel, welcome to Monocle Reads. It's wonderful to connect here.
1: Well, thanks, Georgina. I'm really happy to be here.
0: You're clearly Canadian.
1: Yes, I am Canadian, not not a part of America uh, called Canada, (laughs) but actually Canada.
0: This book is an exploration of the crisis of social isolation and, and of the fundamental human need to belong. Tell me where it began, because I understand there was a very interesting dinner that sparked the idea.
1: Right. Well, before the very interesting dinner, which I'll come to quickly, my uh, father, who's been uh, gone since uh, 2000, he was called Ernie Samuel. He had a a really serious brain injury in 1997, was in a coma for three months, and woke up very, very slowly and when he woke up very very slowly it was clear that he had a lot of different kinds of disabilities and cognitive disabilities and physical disabilities and so on and i i just became aware over time that it wasn't the disabilities that were making him sad it was the way that he was being treated because of the disabilities And I realized that I'd seen that over and over again. It wasn't that someone was experiencing poverty or experiencing homelessness or being a refugee or a forced migrant. It was the way they were being treated because of that. Added to which my father, who had just turned 65, was told because of that he was in his sundown years and therefore would not receive a dollar uh, toward rehabilitation. Now, we were lucky. We We could afford that for him, but... It made me an activist because I realized that this thing of social isolation, this image of someone sitting alone at the bottom of a well was not only unjust, it was preventable, which led me to an amazing moment a couple of years after my dad uh, died, and it was in uh, May of 2002, and I was invited to a dinner in New York City in honor of Nelson Mandela and Gratia Michelle which in itself was pretty amazing. And I'd known Grasha already, uh, who for anyone who doesn't know was th- they were husband and wife. And she herself was and is an incredible leader, particularly around the rights of uh, children and women. And so she asked me with her, as I write her characteristic warmth, how had I been doing since my since my daddy passed. And I said, is as you might imagine, well, I miss him a lot and, and all the things that we all feel when we lose someone that we love. And then I said that in terms of my work, it was all really turned to social isolation and calling this out and destigmatizing it and addressing, addressing pathways forward. At which point I turned to her husband and I said, of course, you would know all about isolation.
0: And just to reiterate, her husband, Nelson Mandela. Right.
1: <laughs> and her husband was Nelson Mandela. And he looked at me and he said, no, I have never been isolated. Well, that was one of those moments when you might say, and things were going so well until. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I recovered my composure somewhat. And I said, not even in Robin Island? And he said, no, because in Robben Island, we were all brothers working together for a common purpose. I was never alone. Now, I'm asked a lot about that. Not really that moment, but this idea of what's the paradox? How can we be so connected in this world and yet feel alone? Or how could somebody, even Nelson Mandela, be in prison for 27 years, 19 of which in Robben Island, not feel isolated? And yet he wrote about being lonely. And it was that moment where it hit me. Well this isn't really a paradox and and not with not with big fireworks or fanfare or, or shooting stars I just had this quiet affirmation of okay wow, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life.
0: So then how do we define belonging and what is the right to belong? Right, right.
1: Belonging can be defined probably by each individual. There's two of us in this room now, but if there were 20 others, they'd probably use 20 other phrases or ways of describing it. I'll give you mine. Mine is what it means to feel at home or in the right place wherever we are. And I... I define belonging in terms of four different aspects. They all start with P. That's not why they were chosen. <laughs> People, which is the connection to one another, which I think is maybe where we first go when we think about it. And then, and then we look at place. One sense of place, for me, that, that mostly means nature. Even on the cover of the book, there's, there's trees with different roots, different species uh, weaving into one another, but the connection to place could also mean what happens in a, in a workplace. And it doesn't have to be the physical place. It's, it's not what policy says. It's how you feel when you're there. The next one is power, which is for me really about empowerment, not about an org chart or uh, maybe in whatever your world is, you need to land on the moon to show your worthiness. It's really about we all have a role uh, to play and none is more greater than the other. And that's comes to purpose, which is really knowing that we belong and and having this feeling again. It doesn't have to be, wow, I'm going to conquer the world. That that wouldn't be such a good one. It would be there's something that means a lot to me and it can change at any given time. That feels bigger than me, and I'm drawn to that.
0: It's absolutely fascinating. I wonder what the right to belong is, though. Yeah,
1: right. The right to belong is is really the, the birthright of belonging which, which I see that every one of us by simple virtue of the fact that we were born has an inherent right of belonging. And that, I know, could sound quite sweet, and I get a lot of on my, either my left or my right shoulder. Oh, that's really nice. Kim, you care about people, and I'm saying thank you, and I hope we all care about people. That's not what this is about. It's about ask someone who has never had their birth registered. How much they feel like they belong and all the things that go with not having a birth registered, like registering for school and to vote and so on and so on. Or somebody who, for example, has left Ukraine uh, because they are a refugee escaping something quite awful. How's their belonging by simple virtue of the fact that they were born and on and on. And and I look at this in terms of the human rights framework as a... Uh, Given on advice of someone called Ken Roth, who used to head Human Rights Watch, he said, Kim, don't go for another human right because that that ain't going to happen. But this could be a very effective tool as a way of lifting up a lot of neglected rights. And I said, well, like which one? which ones? He said, oh, just pick any of them. But the heart of this is, yes, uh, consistent with legal, consistent with human rights and really upholding them. But the heart of it for me is, is what happens in community. And for me, that's really the center of empowerment for belonging.
0: Mm. But I mean, surely at this time when we've got, and I don't want to use the word problem, such an issue with migration, where people are being forced to leave their homes usually through absolutely no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. This becomes a, a massive point, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Yes, it it does. And it's not that sort of, you know, the nice thing on the shoulder, which I think a lot of a lot of people trying to do something useful, whether it's in their volunteer work or whether it's in philanthropy or whether it's in being involved with universities, which which I refer is fascinating and also it's street cred, important to bring the research. Whatever we're doing I think it is vastly important, and I think we know how to do it, and I think we've forgotten how to do it, and it does cut across all kinds of policies, not only the ones that are labeled of, well, this is for loneliness, or this is for that. It's really an ethos that is massively important because people are not only left out by accident, they're systematically forced out, Mm. uh, out of all circles of concern.
0: Because you write about transforming the psychology of othering, which Mm -hmm. is in fact what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the
1: term othering, as you've probably seen, and thank you for reading my book, by the way, not surprised, but thank you. Uh, that term I get from Toni Morrison who really described othering in a series of lectures she gave and I've used I used quite a bit of literature and poetry in the book I wish I could have brought in more but she was one and uh, othering sounds oh well yeah, we're all different that's not what that is that is somebody turns somebody else into something less than and the answer is human less than human that is othering
0: And there's, I mean, is that part of the shadow side of belonging? The shadow side of
1: belonging is what I, I don't know if I coined it, it's just what came up in in me when I was writing about it, because I didn't want to call it dark, because I think we we all carry the shadow with us, it's part of us. The shadow side is what happens when something really looks and even feels like belonging, and at the same time, somebody else, or maybe a lot of people, are being denied their belonging because of what it what it is that you call it, and the danger of the shadow side. And just by one one quick example, I could give is the re- online recruitment uh, for violent extremism. And you can get someone that would talk the same same language as re- recruiting you to. To help to uh, spread the word about food insecurity or to transform food banks actually into community places, might be drawn in hearing that language of now we really understand you and you're feeling lonely and you're not really feeling that you're doing something meaningful. And maybe you're a 15 year old who's being bullied. And at least when my daughter was 15, don't think she was unusual. She thought that I knew nothing. But we have to, we get through those. But not everybody makes it through those that because the longing to belong is just it's so visceral for all of us that we're gonna find it somewhere and if we don't find it where uh where it's a, a place that, that is good for us and good for others in community, we'll go find it somewhere else.
0: I mean, both you and I are living outside of our own countries and mm, I find mm. myself quite envious of British friends who have their family nearby or can trace their roots this way and that, yeah. whose communities they've known forever. I mean, that's that whole idea of being transplanted, I wonder how important place then becomes to all of this.
1: Well... I have a slight advantage, although it only matters to me, which is that my uh, my mom, my late mom, she was at six years old a war evacuee with my grandmother and my grandfather, who joined later to Canada, coming to Canada. And my my dad, his family, had our family, I guess, had been in Canada for a long a long time, but he was his he was born over here so I do feel some connection but oh my goodness Georgina if I ever say that you get that sort of look of this expression that I've learned here of you're not one of us anyway just because you have some roots or a British passport so I do try not to envy even though it is a natural human emotion but I uh maybe I could quote someone who's uh who I mention in in the book uh, about this, about this thing about family um, and how important it is. Uh, Eunice uh, Kennedy Shriver, who founded an incredible organization called Special Olympics to engage people in sport who had intellectual disabilities and and now over time very much equally so their their non-disabled, typically abled partner. She said this. And she said it to me, but I've also heard her say it to others. There's nothing more important than family. So if you don't like the one you have, go get yourself another one. Now, I really like the one I have. (laughs) Some are left. Most have passed on, but... I try to create that wherever I go because I can't do well without it.
0: Armistead mm. um, Maupin said a similar thing. He said, find your logical family as opposed to your biological family, which I, oh, that's I good. really like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, another person that you uh, have many discussions with in the book is Catherine Rain. She's a, a poet. Mm. She's a William Blake scholar. Mm. And you talk about the importance of belonging and the role of art in creating a sense of belonging.
1: Yeah. Tell yeah. us more. Well... We could do a whole hour about Kathleen Rain, so I'm going to give a humble vignette, which is mine. I knew her only in the last six months of her life. She passed, I, th- I think, in 2003, I think, but there-ish, and she was well into her 90s, and I was spending some time over here and got to meet her through a connection in, about William Blake, the first poet I ever loved, and... And his poems I got to learn because I loved him was William Blake's Songs of Innocence, Songs of Experience, which is why I chose Shadowside, by the way, because it's all connected. And Kathleen, her poetry and her writing was very much about the... Uh, which she later formed the Temenos Academy about the about this the Academy of the Spirit. What is perennial? What runs through us forever? Meaning that maybe this table I'm not I can't do a karate move, so it doesn't matter. But the table that we're at it isn't real because someone you could smash it and it's gone. But what what is universal and what is real is uh, is really about about love, not about division. And I. Uh, I learned so much about from her I should say. I got to go over for tea and just listening, mostly listening more than saying anything to what she what she had to say. And one of the I recommend her poems to everybody. And I do a quote from her in a couple of places in the book. But one I'll just mention is a poem called Message from Home and it's really about the fact that we we carry this which I've now I call about this feeling of being at home whenever wherever you are I hope that she would like that I'll never get to know but it's this it's idea that we we carry this this home and this belonging within us it's always there but I would add as Kim we may not know it we may not feel it all the time and there's sometimes where I think we should just offer our resilience loan, loan loan-free forever to another person who needs it. And sometimes that could be us. But the true home for her is when at the end we go home. And I got this idea from her through reading a lot of her writings, but also talking to her, which is quite quite a joy. And it's what I think my whole work is about, is... There's nothing new in what I'm saying. I think it's just that I, I live it and breathe it, and it's kind of I think what I'm meant to be working on. But it's, it's really simply that uh, I think I'm here to, as one of many to wake people up to what we've forgotten, and that means to bring back this more questions of, not I'll tell you what I value. Let's keep asking ourselves, what is it that we value, and how wide is it? acceptable for the gap to be between what we value and what we do and what kind of systems we're, we're willing to live with. So it's the gentle wake up call or the, the Druid idea of holding the space. I figure that's more than enough for one
0: life. Mm. I wonder then how social media has impacted on this, because obviously, in, in many ways, technology has meant that we're more connected than ever. But is that actually true?
1: I know. It's a tricky one. Yeah. Uh, we're more connected than ever through technology, and at the same time, there's a lot of—I mean, one way to answer that would to say it depends what we mean by good good kinds of connecting, because some awful things can happen through social media, bullying and hatred, and, and people can hide behind invisible cloaks and um, and go out to destroy lives which I think is, is is a terrible power to make available to people that wish to use it in that way. On the other hand, we see people that COVID was a good example where people couldn't really connect otherwise, or we see groups of people that it may not be about simply getting messages out. It may be about how do I come together with a group of people who loves labyrinths. I got to walk a labyrinth the other day, so that's, well, how do you find them? And there's a shared passion, or or maybe it's about it's cooking. It's quite niche, so, I must say. Well, I know. No, 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 but I was at the Eden Project. That's where we, we had the UK launch, and so I'm a little pleased that I actually, for the first time, a little niche, but that's, <laughs> I would accept if you accuse me of being slightly quirky, you know, but just slightly. But the thing is that around all this social media and how it's used is I think there's a key point in all of it is what is it that we could be doing when we're online what else could be we be doing might we be reading might we be instead of walking down the street or at a restaurant with family chosen or otherwise, everybody's looking at their iPhone or other device. It's not that we can't have face-to-face, it's that we're we're just kind of forgetting what that means. And I think that that's, that's a discussion that could happen more.
0: I mean, you talk about COVID, which of course must have intensified the issue, but I wonder if there's a connection between the isolation crisis and the climate crisis.
1: Well, absolutely, there there is. And the isolation crisis, to me, has been there. I, I refer to this an age of isolation in the title, not the age. Yeah. It may be that there's more of us on the planet now than there were before and what we're doing to, what we've done to that planet and what we're doing. But when we think of, for example climate refugees which we're seeing all over the world which means you're not just leaving for a while which is bad enough you're not only that you may not go home again your home may not be there again for example if you're if you're in an island uh, in an island nation and then we can also uh, maybe one other example just to say i completely agree with your point one other example would be when we look at cities and i do mention a bit of that in the book just to say that there's a lot of data on what i'm what i'm saying but also we kind of know this we kind of know this anyway so if you're looking in any given city you're most likely to see that the area in a city that's going to be the poorest will also be the area that is going to have the the biggest uh, challenges in terms of climate because they're going to be in the areas that are not the highest ground or they're going to be the areas without the trees they're going to be the areas without for example I'm very big about public libraries as spaces of belonging and spaces of back to the arts that are neglected. We see a direct line there. And those are just two examples. I bet that people listening will already have thought of dozens more.
0: Oh, this whole sense of yeah. inequality yeah. of belonging. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, finally, Kim, belonging to a shared global future. That's the last chapter of your book. Yes. And I wonder... I wonder how we do that, why we should do that, and is it achievable?
1: Yeah, I'll begin with the last part. Absolutely achievable, as long as we are able to use our imagination and imagine it. And if we can't do that and we can't be hopeful, then I think we kind of get what what we take as ordinary and stop stop questioning. Where I end the book is I... um, I look up at. I always look at what's going on in the sky and what's been going on in in the sky in different points of history. And I go to Copernicus and Copernicus was the first astronomer, not the first to say that the Earth was not, dare I say it, the closest planet to the sun. He was the first to be believed, and only after his death, and only because Galileo, before his inquisition, came forward and convinced the Pope of that. And so I'll just, maybe to end on that note, and avoid what Wendell, I got to interview Wendell Berry for the book. At the end of a long interview, I asked for advice because he's a wonderful, wonderful writer, and he said, don't be prescriptive. And so I tried really hard never to tell anyone what to do. And so I end the book with... uh, It's learning from what happened, what we learned about the sky and that at the time it was considered heresy to say that we weren't first from the sun is that it's not the placement of things that it's important, that what's important is the interconnectedness between them. Well, and that's equality and that's hope and
0: that's imagination. And yes, we can do that. Kim, thank you so much. Kim Samuel. Her book is On Belonging, Finding Connection in an Age of Isolation. It's published by Abrams and Chronicle. You've been listening to Monocle Reads thanks to our producer Nora Hull and you can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.